Welcome back to Humbled Highs, Episode 9, Hustle Unveiled, Inside the Gang. Now, I told you from the last episode, I was going to tell you how I was in a hustle gang. And so this is the story. This is back when I'm probably 24, 25. And I just want to say, I got a friend who's in production and he says, hey, the sound quality isn't that great. Well, yeah, I know. I'm inside a car, and I'm using this on my phone. So if anybody wants to show me some love and get me some sort of a Bluetooth mic, make this sound extra good, I'd be glad to do it. Just send it to me. Send me, uh, you know, anything you want. Anyway, um, I hope you guys are liking these stories. I hope some of them are helping you grow. I hope some of them are helping you learn something about yourself learn something about God. This story is just one of those crazy stories that when I tell people, they're like, you used to do what? I'm like, yeah, I was in a hustle gang. And they're like, what's a hustle gang? You know, because most of my friends, you know, they're, they're a little square around the edges. So I got to enlighten them sometimes. So yeah. So I'm in living in Virginia at the time. I'm addicted to crack like major. And I had my son's mother living with me and this girl, Cassandra. Cassandra was this black girl that we knew that we were close friends with. And like I said in the last story, she got out. She she got out of the house and out of the crack addiction. She met this guy. His name was Van. And Van was one of the guys in this hustle gang. Now, the first time I met Van... He came into my house in Virginia and he was drunk and he had this impression that I had some sort of this three-way relationship with Cassandra and my son's mother. And this dude was mad jealous and he pulls out this 40 caliber pistol and puts it square up to my forehead and he's about to pull the trigger. That was the first time I had a gun pulled in my face, not the last time. And I'll tell you the next, another story about how I had a gun in my face. But, you know, you never know what you're going to do when you have a gun in your face. That's why some people just, they think they want to be cops until the day something like that happens. And then they're like, nah. Because that, that fight or flight response, you just really can't manage it. It's just you either you run with your tail tucked or you stand up straight. And I learned that day when Van put the gun in my head, I learned that I'm, I'm a fight. I'm, I'm the guy that keeps his head on his shoulders and looks around and keeps it together. And that's not something you can really control. It's just built into you. And he was drunk, like I said, and he's like, you want to, you want to get with my girl and matter of speaking, you know, he wasn't using nice words. But he's like, you want my girl? You've been sleeping with my girl. I'm like, no, man. I, I said, I I ain't I told him as 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 honestly as I could. I said, "Man, I'm not really attracted to black girls, man." He said, "What's wrong with my girl?" I'm like, "Man, I'm just trying to tell you she'd have to be so beautiful that she wouldn't want to have nothing to do with me. That's just how it is." And I said, "I I I I'm, I like Cassandra as a friend." And he put that gun down on my coffee table and left a 
a, a Glock impression on my coffee table that kind of left me shook looking at it for, from, for months after that. But that's the first time I met Van and he was in the hustle gang. Now, after my son's mother ran off with my best friend, I was just by myself. I had no job. I'd lost my job as a cable guy and I got this mad crack addiction going on. So I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life, you know? And, um, so I called Cassandra and I'm like, Cassandra, I told her what happened. I said, you know, my son's mother ran off with my best friend. I lost my job. And she's like, she's like, I'm doing real good with these people. These people show me love. I'm like, these people. She's like, yeah, there's a whole group of them over here. And, uh, now fortunately I still had a car. I had a Honda, I mean a uh, Volkswagen Jetta. It was tornado red. I remember it four door kind of like that car. And, um, so she said, come on over. We're at this motel in Virginia beach. So I scooted on over there and there was eight of them, all of them, black, black people. I'm the only white kid. Right. And it's like, it was, it was the strangest thing. They had rented out like four different motel rooms all next to each other. And I knock on the door and they're all in this one room and the room's all foggy there. They got it smoked out in there. And, uh, Cassandra welcomed me in and I saw Van and Van was like, man, I'm sorry for putting that gun in your head. I thought you had something to do with her. And I'm like, man, I'm just a crackhead. I've lost everything. And he's like, man, you're cool with me. Van was a, like a light skinned guy and super charismatic, really cool smile, just a, a, a magnetic kind of personality. And so the group consisted of this. There was two older, there was a couple and they were older, maybe in their fifties. There was two, there was another couple of two younger cats. Um, there was Van and there, and there was another single guy. And then there was two lesbians. One was the, played the dude and one was the, uh, the really girly girl, right? So eight of them and me. And I started telling them my sob story about how my, how my son's mother ran off with my best friend and I lost my job and I'm addicted to crack. And, and, um, I guess they just liked what I had to say. Um, so they said, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna help you out white boy. And they said, we're, we're you can chill with us. And Cassandra was like, I'm not addicted to crack no more. I've been, these people have been smoking me out day daily. And I'm like, y'all smoke. And they're like, we smoke, we buy an ounce every day and smoke it among us. I'm like, okay, so what do y'all do to afford that? Cause like, you know, an ounce of weeds, like 300, 400 bucks a day. That's a, you know, plus they got four motel rooms. And so van was like, I'm going to show you what I do. And he grabs, he grabs a pair of dice and he's like, this is what me and my other dude, the other single guy, he's like, this is what we practice all day. We practice craps. We practice um, caps and we practice three card money. I'm like, okay. And so he showed me, he grabs these dice, he starts shaking them up and he, he throws them on the ground and boom, they come out to seven. He grabs them again. Boom, they come out to 11. Boom, seven. Boom, 11. Boom, seven. I'm like, how do you do that, man? He's like, I can roll seven and 11 every single time. I'm like, really? 
and he's, he showed me how he would hold it in his hands, in his fingers. He would pair them up in his, in his ring finger and his middle finger. And it sounded like he was shaking them up like regular dice, but he was actually just holding them in place. And he would stack the dice in his hand to where when he rolled it out, he would roll it out in a very specific way, but you couldn't see how he was rolling it. And he knew how many times them dice would roll. And I don't know if you know anything about dice, but if you stack them right, the way they will roll will either be 7 or 11. And so he's like, this is one of my games. And then he, start, he, he broke out three different playing cards. And he said, this is called Three Card Money. So he's got two black cards, you know, clubs or, or um, spades. And he's got a heart. And he said, he said, I want you to pick the red card. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm real good attention to detail. So he starts, he starts shuffling them. Yeah, I know you've probably seen this game before three cards and the guys just shuffle them. All you got to do is just find the red card. And he, he lets me go for about like 10 different times and I cannot get the red card. And he's like, there's no way you can get it because even if you got it, I'd switch it on you. I'm like, I'm sitting here watching you. He's like, I'm kind of like a magician. I'm a sleight of hand artist. I'm like, wow. So I'm starting to catch on. Then he shows me this other game. It's called Caps. And it's got three of the Coke bottle tops, the, the plastic Coke bottle tops. And he's got this little tiny red squishy ball. And he's like, find the ball. I'm like, seriously, this is what you guys do? He's like, find the ball, man. So he puts the ball under one of the caps starts spinning them around on the on his little piece of cardboard he's got i can't even find it he shows me the the where the ball is under the cap puts it right back down and he said now tell me is it under there and i said yeah he said put a hundred on it i was like i'm broke i picked it up he said no you can't touch it because it was under there then he moved them around again he said if you touch the caps the game's over you lose i'm like oh okay i get it so he like he did it again. He showed me where where it was, and then he said, "Which one is an under?" And I said, "It's under the one you just showed me." He reached down, pulled the cap up, and it wasn't there. I'm like, "Where is it?" This guy was like a modern day. He was a magician. He was a sleight of hand artist. He picked it and he would hold it in the crease of his finger, where and he would squish that ball and you couldn't see it. So I was getting a handle on it. I was like, okay, so you do, you do, you roll craps, you do the three card money and you do the caps. And he said, yeah. I said, so y'all make enough money for this? And he's like, yeah. All right. I said, well, where do y'all, where do y'all do this? He said, well, we're going to show you. And, uh, you know, I, I came back, I kept coming back and we were establishing this, this kind of family thing. And y'all, I never felt so included with a group of people before in my life. Like I said, eight of them wanted me, meaning they're, they're all black. I'm white. Right. And this isn't the first time I've been around that kind of situation. So when my parents broke up when I was 13, we couldn't afford to live in the fancy apartments anymore. So we moved to the other side of the tracks and most of the houses, it backed up against, um, government housing, and then there was government assistant housing. There was me and one other white family on the on the block. And he was my age, but his name was Elvis. 
and Elvis got beat up quite a bit because Elvis would stand up to, to these black kids. I started just kind of like, okay, I want to, and I just came out of Christian school, went into sixth grade in, in, in this public school on the other side of the tracks. So I was like, I better, I better get with the program because I don't want to get beat up. And that's when I started uh, just, just kind of mingling in, getting to know the culture, the black culture. And like all my friends in the neighborhood were black. And I got in with the culture, started listening to gangster rap, you know, Dr. Dre, The Chronic. I would put that my, my mom's speakers outside of the living room, outside and bump it just so I could feel included. You know, I know, I know that grandmas are the head of the family and nothing goes past the grandma. I know that most of the houses don't have a dad figure. I know that there's slippery bathtubs. I know there's weave. I know there's, there's waves in your hair and how to make them. I know what skull caps are. So don't tell me I don't know black culture. I know black culture. So when I got into this hustle gang, I felt accepted. I felt approved and I felt loved. So once they knew that I wasn't no snitch and I was going to be on their backs, they said, we're going to include you in our gang. And this is how we make our money. So the first place we went to was a mall. And they said, we're going to pay off the people in the footlocker and we're going to play on these benches where you try on your shoes. We're going to play whatever game they'll want us to play. And so like there's eight of them, right? But there's only two guys that do the sleight of hand. And so it was either Van or his other, his other friend. I can't remember his name. It was a slim dude. And so I tried to figure out, okay, so what do they want me to do? What, what part can I have in this? They had lookouts that would be outside the store, that would be inside the store, that were checking for security, checking for mall cops, checking for cops, and making sure nobody was going to rob them, right? So my job was to pretend like I was playing the game against Van or his partner. And my job was to pretend that I was making bets and that I was winning. And so the deal was... I pretend to be winning and then they would, they would pick out what's called a mark. I don't know if you ever heard of a mark. A mark is, it's a person who, who's got a lot of money, who, who wears a lot of chains. Usually they're walking by themselves. Uh, they think they're cool, but they're not. And they probably have a lot of merchandise in their hands. They're, they're easily fooled right? A mark is easily fooled and you can take their money and you can take all their money. Somebody that believes they can win a lot for nothing, right? So they'd go pick out a mark and one of them would come over to me and say, go get that one. And so here's the deal. They told me, they told me I needed to say the N word and that I'd never use that in a derogatory way. They told me I needed to go walk over to this mark and tell them, Hey, I don't trust these fill in the blank. I, know, I want you to watch over my bet and hold my money. And they'd be like, the mark would be like, what are you doing? Like I'm playing this caps game or I'm playing dice with them or I'm playing these, this three card money and I'm winning money, but the money's getting high and I don't trust these people. And so I would pull the mark over. Let's say we go into the foot locker. The mark would see me win. Like every bet was doubled. So I'd start a bet with 20. 
then I'd find the red card. Boom, go to 40. I'd find the red card. Boom, go to 80, 160. And then I would walk away pretending like I won like 160. I'd be like, all right, I'm good. I'm gonna good. Now you already tell where I'm going here. So the mark thinks, oh, this is easy money. You know, um, somebody like in Malibu's most wanted, you know, that, that kind of a person, they, they think they're cool, but they're really a dork. Right. And so they, they'd start off maybe with a high bet, you know, maybe they start at 60 and the deal with these hustlers is you let them win. You look at their money, see how much money they got, you know, cause marks will always show you how much money they got in their pocket. Don't count your money in public. Y'all don't do it. I taught my son that a long time ago because people were watching you. Don't count your money outside of a store and don't let other people see you counting your money. We would watch these marks. We would see how much money they had and know, okay, well, he's got about $500. Okay. So we're going to let him win till we get up to where he don't have no more money. Boom. He gets up to a $500 bet. Can't find the cap. Can't find the red card. Boom. He loses. Then you tell him, all right, the game's over. Now, if he's got a problem, we got eight heads to settle it. So we didn't normally have any problems with people. They just usually, marks just usually just take their loss and go on. And if it wasn't in a footlocker, we'd go to the arcade in the mall. If it wasn't an arcade, we'd go to bars, play in the back of bars, rolling dice, rolling dice in the, in the, in the cut. And dice is a little bit more of a, uh, a a high stakes game that that can get up to a lot of money. And when you're playing with a sleight of hand artist that can't lose, sometimes that can get to be one of those situations where somebody might have a gun, especially in a bar when there's alcohol. Marks can some of them can be violent, but we still we never had any problems. I never saw. I knew that Van had a gun because he put it in my face when he thought I was trying to sleep with his girl, Cassandra, but, um, I never saw any violence out of him. It, it was just, you know, some days they pull in a couple thousand and some days it'd be just a few hundred, you know, sometimes we went to, uh, to high school games like basketball games, uh, you know, and, and just wherever you'd see a large gathering of people where we could have a few lookouts and sometimes, you know, like if, if, uh, a mall security would come around, one of the lookouts would just do like a special little whistle and then everybody would just kind of disperse. And that was, that was pretty cool. Now, um, that went on for, you know, I don't know, two or three months. And I was, I was no longer addicted to crack by the way, you know, they, they were, they were smoking me out. They were very generous. I didn't even have to ask. They were always smoking and that smoking just replaced that addiction I had with something else. The other two people that were in that hustle gang, the lesbians, one was the played the dude and the other one was the girly girl. And because I had a car, that was another advantage that I had to them because they didn't have a car. They were just kind of mobile. What I found out is they were from all different places, all of them were. And they would just, they'd pretty much get to a point where they they had been to all the spots that they couldn't go back to and they just migrate to another city and so virginia beach was just one of the stops along the way and so the two lesbians 
what I did for them is the girly girl was actually like a back page call girl. And so the, the three of us would ride around at night after the hustles were done. And I would take this, the girly girl to different guys' houses and me and, and the, 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 the dude of the couple would just sit outside and, and smoke while she's inside doing whatever. And I would, I would ask her, I'd be like, don't you feel weird that your girlfriend's inside getting, you know, doing whatever? And she's like, I don't want to talk about that. I'm like, we're just sitting out here for an hour. Like, what do you want to talk about? Like, Not that. I'm like, okay. So just, it's just a seedy side of the world that, that I was just getting new to, you know, hustles, um, prostitution, drug use, and the culture uh, of, of being in an all-black unit. And, you know, I've seen the other side of, of reverse racism. You know, when you're in a minority, I'll just tell you, most of the people listening to this are white, and you never know what it's like to be in a minority. You don't know what it's like to walk in a room and you're the only person of that color because you're, you're, you're in the majority. And, and I would just encourage you to place yourself in those positions where you might feel uncomfortable, where you walk into a room and everybody looks at you like, what are they doing here? Or people are whispering about you, you know, because I've seen racism on the other side because we're all we're all prone to fall into people groups and then judge the people that are outside it. You know, I, and I was called cracker, I was called white boy, um, you know, just just several different racial things that made me feel and understand what it's like to be on the other side, to, to have jokes that, that you don't really understand about you. And like I said, they love me, but I wasn't their culture. You know, I was learning their culture, but I wasn't their culture. Just like, just like you as a, as a white person, if you're listening to this, you need to understand that that whites are the majority and it's uncomfortable for a black person to walk into an all white room. It's just a little bit uncomfortable and you need to go and make them feel comfortable and let them know that they're included and they're, they're valuable and they're special because those people, that hustle gang, they did that for me and it made me feel special. Um, I remember one of those stories, the old head, the, the older couple, he took, he said, we're going to go out tonight. And I'm like, okay. So we got in my car and he, and we picked up this, this crackhead hooker. And he said, let's go back to your place. I still had that house, uh, that, that I lived at with my son's mother, you know, and, and it was just, it was basically, there wasn't nothing going on at that house. I spent most of my time in the hotels and the motels with them, but we picked up this crackhead hooker and he had a wife, you know, but you know, apparently these are things that, that guys do, not me, took her to my house and he went upstairs with her and I could hear, you know, there was some stuff going on, some action going on. He came downstairs and he's smoking some crack in, in a, in a cigarette. And he's like, Hey, you want some? I'm like, dude, don't you remember? I was a crackhead when I came to you. He's like, Oh no, uh, I forgot. Man, why don't you go upstairs and finish that? I'm like, Gross. I said, can we just leave? I don't even want to be here. So he said, you better not say nothing to my old lady. I'm like, I'm not going to say anything, bro. 
it was just a weird story in the situation. I, I had cleared my addiction and I, I'd really had enough of this lifestyle. It was interesting. It was fun. It was neat. But my car got repoed and I had, I had nothing going on in my life. So I just got tired of it. Um, I packed up a duffel bag, my Navy duffel bag full of clothes. I called my mom and I'm like, mom, I'm, I'm coming home to Tennessee. And she's like, well, you ain't going to stay here long. And I said, yes, ma'am. Got on a Greyhound bus, said goodbye to the hustle gang and went back from Virginia back to Tennessee. And that was the end of that chapter. I hope you guys enjoyed the story. I got many, many more for you. So hang in there. Y'all be good.